If Christ is king, how should the Christian consider the kingdoms of this world? What does the Bible teach us about human authority and what it means to love our neighbors and our enemies? Before we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, let's know what it means to render unto God what is God's. This is the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, the modern prophetic voice against war and empire. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, part of the Christians for Liberty Network. This week and every week on Biblical Anarchy, we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man and to instead seek the kingdom of God by unpacking what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. I'm your host, Jacob Winograd. So today's episode is a continuation of a conversation or topic that we started on the last episode. We're back in Romans. We went through Romans 9 and 10 on the last episode, and we're talking about things that are key in the conversation about dispensationalist theology and how it contrasts or juxtaposes with covenant theology. The dispensationalist claims about Israel and the church And the use of the term Israel in the New Testament is a lot of what I focused on in that last episode. And there'll be some of that in this episode, but we, in the last episode, went through chapters 9 and 10 and sort of went through all the different references of the word Israel or the word Jew. And we've been building a case that the dispensationalists are wrong in terms of that there aren't any uses of the word Israel except those that refer to ethnic Israel. And now in Romans 11, although that's going to continue, the focus is also going to be on what is God's intention with the ethnic Israelites, the Hebrews, and how they fit into God's future plan. Because there is a debate between whether or not There is still a covenant that God has with them specifically that will ensure that they will be saved, which is more of what dispensationalists believe or what those who would propose a dual covenant type of theology or multiple gospels would believe. You know, I believe, and I think it's the historic church belief that there is one covenant of grace and that rather what we see is that we talked about this in the last episode, that Jesus is the true Israel who fulfills the promises given to Abraham's offspring. And so Israel, the nation, was the sort of springboard, was the foundation, was the sort of midwife, you could say, for the new covenant and for bringing about God's ultimate plan of redemption and his ultimate universal covenant of grace, universal in a sense of applying to all peoples, not just one ethnicity. And the dispensationalists are going to try to use Romans 11 in a particular way. They're going to look at Romans 11.26, where it says that all Israel will be saved. But again, we need to ask ourselves, what does Israel mean in this? And what does even mean to say all Israel? Because there are many times that the word all might seemingly on the surface be read by our eyes or heard by our ears to mean every last individual but that's not always what it means. And I'll get to this more in the episode, but even in, you know, without using this 
chapter without using biblical references, we can probably think of many times just in our vernacular where we use the word all, but it doesn't quite mean every single individual or every single unit in some sort of exhaustive way. And so there's a little bit of foreshadowing. I wanted to lay the groundwork in terms of what we already covered in last episode and what this episode is going to focus on, which is again going to be finishing out looking at Romans 9 through 11. We're going to focus on Romans 11, tie everything together and look at how God's kingdom and God's promises to Israel, all of these things come together and find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ and dispensationalism only muddies it. And again, it's important to add this little touchstone here. This theology is used very often, even if it's not explicitly cited, it influences even often all that is necessary for the Christians in large, especially here in the West, to have support for the modern state of Israel, a support that goes beyond just a generic support, but is sort of this like unyielding, uncompromising support. One that would say that Israel is justified in doing anything, not just what is necessary, beyond what ought to be considered necessary in securing their land because God promised it to them. And I think that this is dangerous. I think it does harm to the gospel message, does harm to our witness, does harm to the image of Christ, the image of his church. And it distracts us from what I think we really need to be doing as Christians, which is to be not taking sides, not saying, you know, Hamas is good and Israel is evil or vice versa, but rather it's just, again, recognizing that there are flawed sinners on both sides of this conflict and most conflicts. And we need to be calling for peace. We need to be pointing people towards Christ. We need to be preaching the gospel. And so that's all for introductions for this episode. I hope you enjoy it. We continue on in 11.11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Who are they? They is the Jews, those who have dived into the dark, dark corners of the web know how weird that is to say, because that is the uh, anti-Semitic trope, who is they. That's not the point of what I am saying here, but a little bit humorous. Yeah, I'm asking who is they, and it is the Jews in this case. In this case, because of the grammatical and narrative context of the scripture, they is the Jews, okay? <laughs> so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. This is the 14th reference, and this is ethnic Israel, although this is except the remnant, who Paul just explained. So they, in this case, are the Jews who stumbled. Not the Jews who were preserved, but the Jews who stumbled. Now, did they stumble ultimately to just fall? And Paul says, by no means. No, the goal, as he goes on to explain, and how he's already re made reference to this, was to make Israel jealous because through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And verse 12, now if their trespass means riches for the world, now in this case, <laughs> yeah, so if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So, if the Gentiles can be grafted in, how much more does that mean that the natural branches can be grafted back in? However, how will they be grafted back in? Well, let's keep reading here. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. 
This is in verse 13. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, and again, he says, I am an apostle to the Gentiles, but he says, inasmuch then as I am. So Paul is not defining himself here, by the way, as only an apostle only to the Gentiles, but saying that in so much as I am, but that doesn't mean that that's exhaustive of everything he is and that his gospel is specifically only for the Gentiles. That is to read something into the text. In so much as I am apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Well, hold on. They have a different gospel, Paul. Why are you worried about those Jews? Jesus came for them. You're for the Gentiles. Stop worrying about them. <laughs> you see how silly this is? No, he's, he's hoping that as the Gentiles are saved by the gospel, that the Jews will also be saved by the gospel, the one gospel. There is no other gospel. As Paul says in Galatians, there is no other gospel that can save. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So here, keep reading. He goes on to talk about, continue this analogy of the branches and the olive tree. And this is kind of a warning, right? In verse 22, Paul was extending a warning to the Christian church as a whole. He's saying on the one side that God's election of Israel did not guarantee each individual Jew's salvation, as we saw in Romans 9 and 10. So that on the other side, we cannot presume that all the members of the church are saved. And by the church, I mean like the visible church. The same God is both kind and stern to those who follow him. He's kind to those who follow him and stern to those who wander. So Paul has issued a warning to remain in kindness or risk being cut off. So do not become proud. And what does he say in verse 20? that they, the Jews, again, because back up here, he says, then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. If you have what? Unbelief. It's about the faith. It's about the belief. So he's saying, the Jews and Gentiles are again are an equal playing field. They will either be cut off or be grafted in, both based on faith, based on belief, not based on works, not based on ethnicity, not based on different gospels, based on one gospel. What does it say in verse 23? And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. It's just being repeated over and over and over and over again. So let's continue on into verse 25. We're getting really close here to the key passage we started out this podcast talking about. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness 
from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. We had two more references there, 15 and 16 of Israel. So Romans eleven twenty five, there is a partial hardening of Israel. So he's kind of like summarizing again what he'd already said there. This is done to save the Gentiles. And then this is again, minus the remnant that didn't lose their belief, that they did believe in the Christ when they saw him. So we get the 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. So this is the crux we've been building to. And this is what dispensationalists or the dual or multi-covenant Christians make major arguments for their views from. They read this and they don't do what I just did. They don't start in Romans 9, read all the way up to chapter 11, right? We got to remember that these chapter and verse things were added in later. This is clearly Paul is building something here and seven and eight lead into nine and nine through 11 is all one continuous thought, one continuous text. So when you just hear someone pop a verse, it's easy to spend two minutes and just read two lines and build a a worldview from that. We don't do that here. We try to read scripture in context. They read this argument as that God will save all of ethnic Israel. Even though we just read all the, you know, in in 9 and 10 and and 11 up until this point, where he's clear that it's not all ethnic Israel, that they have to stop their unbelief and come to saving faith and that there's no difference between Jew or Greek. Keeping all that in mind. They also argue that all references to Israel by Paul are references to ethnic Israel, which we've already proved at least one isn't. But there was another. So there was in Romans 9, 6, sorry, we just do this. But there's Romans 9, 6. We're not all descended from Israel, belong to Israel. So that's the first instance where it's pretty clear that there are two Israels and they both can't be ethnic Israel. So right away, we have at least one instance where the word Israel is not referring to ethnic Israel. And then the one that we just read here, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. There is a question of what this means, right? There is the other one, which I called it out when I read it, and I'm trying to read through my notes here. Oh, here we go. Romans 11.1, has God rejected his people? Again, who are his people? So we have some cracks in the armor of that argument as well. Now. I'm going to read from, I don't want to straw man dispensationalist, right? So Paul Enns is a popular Christian dispensationalist. He summarizes dispensationalism in the following words. Dispensationalists arrive at their system of interpretation through two primary principles, maintaining a consistently literal method of interpretation and maintaining a distinction between Israel and the church. I've not seen that in Romans 9 through 11 so far. The latter, the distinction between Israel and the church, is the result of the former, a consistently literal method of interpretation. So when the dispensationalist does an exegetical study of the term Israel in the New Testament, he finds 17 uses by Paul, and a lot of those are in Romans, and then there's 12 in Matthew, 12 in Luke, there's some in Acts and Mark and 4 in John, three in Hebrews, three in Revelation, that they're all contextually referring to the ethnic people of Israel. I think I've already proven this wrong. Even with the one, there, there's one slam dunk we know is not Israel, ethnic Israel, and that's nine, six. And then we have 11, one, and then we have this one that can be questioned. This leads to another key principle in dispensationalism. 
this is still reading from ends, the unilateral, unconditional, and therefore eternal nature of the Abrahamic covenant. So that's how that summary ends here. So we have the fact that Israel was always ethnic Israel and that the Abrahamic covenant is unilateral, unconditional, and eternal, and it has to be about the ethnic Jews. So is it true that all these references to Israel refer to ethnic Israel? No. I should just keep reading my notes. I said everything I just said. Romans 9, 6, 7 clearly says that not all ethnic Israels belong to the true Israel. Further, what does Paul say about being a true Jew in Romans 2, 28? Quote, for a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. So it is clearly not true that all references to Israel are that of ethnic Israel. I mean, I could go through and try to debunk, you know, as many as I could, but for purposes of time, and we're already running short of that time here, it's clear that if I'm able to, in just looking in the book of Romans, prove this isn't true, we'd be able to find that this is true elsewhere as well. Furthermore, we know that Jesus is the true Israel. In Galatians 6, remember, he is the Israel of God. And let's go back to Genesis 12. I'm going to build a case here. Genesis 12, 15, and 17 are where we see Abraham's covenant being described and laid out. God said his offspring would be a blessing to the nations, right? We see then here are more promises, continuations on this idea. We see in Exodus 19 that Israel is called to be a kingdom of royal priests to the nations. And in Isaiah 42, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. So this was repeated, right? Starting in Abraham and then throughout this covenant, God is saying that Abraham's people, right? And this is, you know, Israel is Abraham's true offspring are to be a blessing to the nations, a royal priesthood, a light. This can even be traced back before Abraham to the end of the fall in which God gives hope by saying that to Eve, that your offspring will crush the serpent, that what has happened can be reversed and that the curse of death will not reign forever. Matthew tells us that Jesus fulfills Hosea 11. This is in Matthew chapter 2, 13 through 15. And this is something, by the way, that like Jews get like, they think they have this like, oh, this proves that Matthew is a hack. And that, because this isn't a prophecy. Because like what Hosea 11 reads, like out of Egypt, I called my son. And yes, it was talking about Israel in that context. But the point of why Matthew quotes that is because he's, Matthew's making the argument here through the context. And the Jews of the day reading this would have gotten this, that he is the true Israel. He is the faithful Israel who succeeds where old covenant Israel failed. Like ancient Israel, he came up out of Egypt. He passed through the waters. He was tested in the wilderness. Unlike Old Covenant Israel, however, Jesus passes these tests. He is, therefore, the true Israel. He's the one who's worthy to be called 
God's son. He's worthy to be called. You know, he is, as it says <laughs> in Galatians, he is the offspring of Abraham because of who he is and his deity, the incarnation, because of what he accomplished in his humanity, in his ministry, that we have the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel tells us that we can be the true Israel of God as well, because we are in Christ. If we are in Christ, we share in the privileges and the relationship he enjoys as God's true son. And we are not sons of God by nature. Rather, we are sons of God by adoption. Remember that being referenced earlier, right? That they will be called sons of God. That's who the true Israel is. It is those who will be called sons of God. This was in Romans 25, and he was again quoting Hosea. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. You cannot be a son of the, of the living God without being in Christ by that holy adoption. We are beloved children in Christ. And as such, we inherit all of the promises given to old covenant Israel those promises of God that Israel would rule over her enemies and enjoy abundant covenant blessings of being that royal priesthood, being a light and a blessing to the nations of kings coming from that line, right? Who was, there's only one king, only one true king, although he was foreshadowed, right? By the kingdom of Israel. He was foreshadowed by King David who had a heart after God, but they all fell short. Even David fell short. Israel falls short. Jesus did not fall short. He is the true offspring of Abraham, the true Israel, because he fulfills all these things. And now those promises are for all of God's people, the true Israel of God, consisting of Jews and Gentiles who are united to Christ by faith alone. And in him, we are the true Israel of God, heirs of a glorious destiny that was initially promised to God's old covenant people, but the kingdom of Israel was just a pale foreshadowing of the true kingdom of heaven, of the true Israel that was to come. And he, yes, as Paul said, it was through them. I mean, we thank God for the nation of Israel because it is through the nation of Israel that God brought about the Christ so that all can be saved. So then what's Patrick then? What about Romans eleven twenty six that says all Israel will be saved? So listen, there are some who really try to insert into this text here that Israel is the church. But in this instance, I'm going to agree with the dispensationalists, but not entirely on their conclusions, but I'll agree with them that this Israel is referring to ethnic Israel. I don't think it holds to read this as the church. But Paul doesn't say all Jews will be saved. And he's already made it clear that not all Jews will be saved. And that flesh and ethnic identity does not afford them any special privileges in terms of salvation. So dispensationalists will use this to argue that the Jews are only temporarily hardened. But by the end of the age, Jews will all be grafted back in because God can't break his covenant with this chosen race. And it seems clear, all means all, right? Well, here's the problem. All frequently does not mean all. Or mean, and it doesn't mean all in the sense of exhaustive of every single last individual in reference in a particular group or you know wherever that's being referred to. There are many different 
passages that we can bring up here that are going to illustrate this. We can go to Old and New Testament. We can even think just colloquially in our language, right? Like think about it. Like if I say, oh, wow, that, well, that game was long. It, it took all day. Or it could be like, my back hurt all day. It doesn't mean like, what do you mean by all day? Do you mean every second of every minute of every hour from 12 o'clock a.m. to 12 o'clock p.m.? I mean, no, a lot of times we use the word all and we're just describing a long period of time, right? But let's look to the Bible as well for instances where things are written that way. So 1 Samuel 25, verse 1 Samuel died and all Israel assembled to mourn for him and they buried him by his home in uh, Ramah. So was it all Israel? Like, or did it mean like all the tribes like sent people? But you know, was it every man, woman, and child, every last individual? Well, no, it just means like a large number of Israelites went. Another instance would be in Second Chronicles chapter 12. When Rehoboam had established his sovereignty and royal power, he abandoned the law of the Lord, he and all Israel with him, because they were unfaithful to the Lord. Then Egypt went to war against Jerusalem. What does this mean? You know, when it says that he abandoned the Lord and he and all Israel with him, does this mean every single Jew rejected God? Or does it mean like the vast majority? That might be a more realistic reading. Uh, I mean, the Jewish people often did abandon God, but even if there's just one left, and even like, you know, Elijah thought he was the last one. It's like, no, there was still a remnant who who believed. So all in that case, very likely does not mean all. Let's go to the New Testament. Let's go to John 3, 5. John the Baptist has said, then all Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. So again, another instance where all does not mean all. It wasn't all, you know, I mean, clearly it couldn't have been everyone from Jerusalem and, and Judah and the surrounding regions. So it's just saying like all, as in like a large number of people who went out to him. We can see this again in, hopefully if I have it written down right, Romans 5. And this would be in verse 18. So this is Paul, right? So I've been building a case. Old Testament uses it that way. Matthew used it this way. Paul himself in Romans says, therefore, and in verse 18, 518, therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. And so I have a lot to say about that last one I just read, but then let's let's get to the end of chapter 11, right? What does it say at the end of chapter 11 here? For God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. So these last two passages, by the way, are very similar to other passages that Christian universalists, and that means advocates for universal reconciliation, not to be confused with Unitarian universalists, they use these passages to justify their theology. Now, the dispensationalists are going to argue out of both sides of their mouth and display their inconsistency here because dispensationalists are not universal reconciliation believers. So they will, in these other passages, right, in the case of Romans 5, in the case of Romans 11, 32, 1 Timothy 2, and in other similar passages, they will say all does not mean all, as in the sense of every single individual. 
Rather, in many of these passages, all just means many or a great number. But then they'll say here, oh, well, all Israel will be saved. It doesn't mean all. You can't argue out of both sides of your mouth in this case. The language and writing style of these ancient authors and stuff, and even today, sometimes we use all in a sense that doesn't mean every single. Sometimes we see it that way, where all means every single number. That's not impossible. But in these passages, it means many, a great number. We sometimes see in other passages that it refers to all types, right? As in not just one group or one nation, but all mankind of different tribes, tongues, and nations. So for reading Paul's words, he doesn't say, and therefore all individual Jews from now to eternity will be saved. He is saying in this way, all Israel will be saved meaning that this explanation is made in light of looking at the landscape in a particular viewpoint or lens. That's what we mean when we go like, well, in this way, it's kind of like Star Wars where he's like, Ben, you told me my father died. He's like, well, he did die in a particular point of view. So it's kind of like we can sort of in a figurative sense describe things. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying in this way, all Israel will be saved. So it's a particular point of view. So what is the lens or point of view he's alluding to here? Well, the context before and after makes this all clear. In the analogy of the olive tree branches before in verse 26 through 32, Paul is trying to emphasize, like it says in verse 32, that God has imprisoned all or many in disobedience to be hardened or stumble in order that all may be saved. Well, who is the all? It's the elect, the remnant those who will be justified by faith, the children of Abraham, who are the true inheritors of the covenant of Abraham, as it says in Galatians 3 and 4 and 6, and it's also talked about in Hebrews. Therefore, we can conclude that it is not all ethnic Jews who will be saved here, especially because Paul has been going out of his way to make it abundantly clear in the entirety of Romans that it is not all ethnic Jews that will be saved. He's not going to contradict himself here. We can only conclude that it's not all ethnic Jews. And that means verse 32 can only mean one of three things, right? It means many Jews or the Israel in this verse is referring to the true Israel, the Israel of God, meaning Christ and his bride, or I would suggest it could be both. It could be a dual meaning that he's both saying many Jews will be saved and the true Israel, meaning the church, the Christ and his bride, will be saved. And that is the true Israel. That is the Israel being referred to in chapter 9, verse 6. It is not all who are descended from Israel who are Israel. Who is it? The children of the promise. Who are the children of the promise? Those who, like Abraham, obtained righteousness by faith, as it says in Galatians. And again, it says in 23 that if they do not continue in unbelief, they will be grafted in. That necessarily means that it is not all ethnic Jews who will be saved, but those who come to saving faith. There is no Jew. There is no Greek. Paul is everything he's saying in Galatians, he's saying here as well. So then what about the land, right? That's something that, well, what about the Abrahamic covenant promises about the land? What happens to those? Well, the land was promised in conjunction with ethnic Israel being a theocratic nation and God's people. But God's people was no longer tied to a theocracy or ethnicity. 
but to God's elect. God's people are to inherit many things, but they're not going to inherit something as insignificant as land, but rather we are inheritors of the kingdom of heaven, being a royal priesthood. The land was important, but it served a purpose. And you know, where are we going to, where are we going to store our treasure here or in heaven? And where is God's, where did Jesus say his kingdom is? Is his kingdom of earth or is it not of this world? This is what I said earlier. The uh, Israel of old, right? The ancient kingdom of Israel is a pale foreshadowing of the true kingdom of heaven and the true king who is our savior, Christ the Lord. So now it is described again, Abraham's covenant is described as a everlasting covenant. Okay, that is true. Well, what does everlasting mean? It's similar again to the analysis of the word all. So the Hebrew for the word everlasting here in Genesis chapter 12 and well, the 12, 15, and 17, where he's described making the covenant. It's an everlasting covenant, right? The Hebrew word here is olam. And this means different things in different contexts, by the way. And it, it sometimes refers to things in antiquity or an ancient past. Sometimes it refers to the ending of an age or a lifetime. And sometimes it does refer to something that will always be. We have to read this in context. The important thing to consider here is that the Abrahamic covenant in many ways is everlasting because of Christ and his resurrection. The new covenant is in Christ and his blood. We become inheritors with Christ, but the new covenant takes the Abrahamic promises and does one of two things. It transfers them to a larger body with an even larger significance, and it brings some things to an end because they have been fulfilled. The promise of the land was to bring about the Christ. That has been done. We can't simultaneously believe Christ's kingdom is not of this world and that he has taught us that these many things, again, about storing our treasures in heaven and not being of the flesh, but instead of living by the spirit and then circle back and become concerned with land. Land promise is done. It's been fulfilled. Israel, the theocratic nation, was an eschatological intrusion that brought about the Christ and the new covenant. It was also to bring about the law, which was to point us to our need for a savior. And so in this way, the Israel, the ancient earthly nation, fulfilled its purpose. It did become a blessing to the nations and it delivered because it delivered the Messiah. Israel pointed to our need for a savior, pointed to our need for a perfect kingdom, and it pointed to our need for a perfect king. God's promises are never broken. However, our understanding of them can be limited. How he fulfills them, that can happen over time and often subverts our expectations. Christ subverted the expectation of many Jews. And that is the point that Paul is making, both in Galatians and here in Romans 9 through 11. So I think it's clear here that not all references of Israel are of ethnic Israel, but there is a greater Israel. There is, of course, Christ who is the Israel of God. And there is us who are the children of the promise who are now in Christ and thus in Christ. That's what the new covenant is. It's the new covenant in his blood. And so because of his blood, which was shed for the forgiveness of our sins, the veil has been torn and now we are born again in Christ. The new covenant is that we become inheritors with Christ. So the old covenant brought about the new covenant. And we can only say amen to that. And then we can say that 
This isn't a teaching that is hateful towards the Jews. And so no more hateful than it's anyone else. We all need a savior. As Paul says, it's those who come to faith, those who believe. It'll be counted as righteousness because of what Christ has done. We should not be focused on land and we definitely cannot look back and say, God promised this land to this group of people and they're still owed that land. No, because the reason God gave them that land has already been fulfilled. So that is all I have for you guys today. I know that was a lot (laughs) for a solo episode, especially. Some of it was a little bit like I went into last time, but this time was to fully expound some of those points, to focus in on Romans 9 through 11, and to squash this idea that all ethnic Jews are saved, and the idea of these dual covenants, the idea of the land promises still mattering. These are important claims that need to be debunked, that need to be combated with. Because again, these beliefs, they do harm to the gospel, they do harm to our witness to other people as we represent Christ as his ambassadors, and they're used to justify the actions of governments of America, of the United Nations, of of Israel. And listen, I have no problem with the idea of this modern nation state of Israel existing, but I don't care what they call themselves. They're not the true Israel. And I don't care what they call themselves. They don't have some divine right to suspend morality because of this divine claim that they have to this land. They don't have a claim to this land. It was promised to them that part of the covenant has been fulfilled. It's not, you don't break a promise when you fulfill it. Like if I promise to give you $10 and I give it to you, and then like you come up a thousand years later and be like, where's my $10? It's like, well, you, I don't owe you $10. Oh, you're breaking your promise. It's like, no, I already gave it to you. God gave them the land he fulfilled. And this will be, you know, we got to get into more of the claims of promises or prophecies that weren't fulfilled. But I think here we see what I've covered in this episode. God did give to Israel that which he said he would give them and then used it for what the reason was all along, fulfilled it in Jesus Christ. So that is all I have for you guys today. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you again next week. The Biblical Anarchy Podcast is a part of the Christians for Liberty Network, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you love this podcast, it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others. If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.